0: Once a spy rode boldly into Shwari town, seeking someone to question at length. To see how her people fared in Shwari's hand, and to judge for himself Shwari's strength. Behind lay a man who would make himself king, awaiting the spy's word to go. Welcome back to yeah. the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, in this episode, we'll be continuing our look at The Future is Female, uh, an edited volume uh, published as a special um, publication by the Library of America this year, I believe. Uh, it's edited by Lisa Yazek, and it is a collection of 25 stories by women, by American women, mostly, in the go- mostly from the golden age of science fiction. Uh, in this episode, this is the fourth episode in this series, I'm Going to look at stories published from 1959 to 1966 so we're entering into kind of the new wave science fiction i, I think the best maybe representation of new wave science fiction might be like the dangerous visions anthology or the, the more dangerous visions anthology those two anthologies both published i think late 60s early 70s kind of collected a lot of these these new age Science fiction writers, New Wave science fiction writers, you know people like Philip K. Hey, Dick is kind of putting that that group, uh, Philip Jose Farmer, you know. There's, you know, they start dealing with new themes, right? They're a little bit more trippy. You start getting more uh, criticism of some of the the old wave uh, thieves, the the Campbell kind of um, themes. Speaking of Campbell, I, I think I have a memory of of saying Chandler in one of the earlier episodes instead of Campbell, but maybe that's just. Uh, the the, the, the f- malability of memory, but um, I may have made that mistake in the past. But anyways, those kind of Campbell themes get criticized a little bit more. You get um, certainly you get more uh, people writing about women, writing about gender, writing about sexuality, um, and and it's really fun. I, I think it's a, a a lot of interesting stuff came out in those years. Uh, these uh, pretty much all published in the '60s. These seven stories I'm going to look at today. Well, anyways, if you're just joining us, I encourage you to go back and listen to the previous three episodes, where I covered the first. Um, I'm not even sure how many, first twenty or first uh, 13, 12 stories in this in this anthology. Uh, in this episode, I'll be looking at, uh, I, I believe, it's seven stories, um, and it, and I'm still following the hundred-page format, even though the the pages in this anthology are smaller or there's fewer words on, on each page than in the typical Library of America um, publication but why um, there I'll just take it easy. Uh, this, so but th- in this particular 100 page chunk we have seven stories so they're, they're fairly short. First, Rosal George Brown published uh, the story Carpool Carpool in 1959 in the in the magazine if. Um, so what's this story about? Well, it's like a couple other stories in this particular anthology. We get this, this kind of commentary on, on like middle-class, bourgeois life for women, but it's kind of put in a sci-fi setting. I think the best example of that is Created He, Them by Alice Eleanor Jones. I think that was in the previous episode, where you have a post-apocalyptic environment where the world's been destroyed in a nuclear war and you have an authoritarian post-dystopian uh, government, yet women, at least fertile women, are placed in, in kind of this uh, this, this suburban, uh, this traditional suburban life where they make breakfast, they raise the kids in these households. Um, it's kind of like, it's, it's almost it reminds me a little bit of The Handmaid's Tale in that way, that you have a post-apocalyptic environment, and then the response to that is reinforcing traditional gender roles on fertile women. Um, very, very similar idea. Maybe someone should investigate if there was any any stealing of ideas involved there. But anyways, this does the same kind of thing uh, instead of dealing with uh, kind of motherhood in the suburban home and and those dilemmas and and technology that's in that story a lot too. Here we have um, the carpool, right So the twist here. It would, you know is the introduction of an alien child into the carpool dynamic there's these uh aliens who have come to earth and and it's mostly about how the other kids interact with and deal with the presence of this alien in the carpool so these aliens are called his hisarians and they're, they're still in the process of, of being kind of acculturated into Earth. They're like refugees. It's kind of like the, the people story we, we read last time, the Zena Henderson Ararat story, where you have... In, the difference here is that these aliens are fully integrated. Well, not fully integrated yet, but, but fully part of society. They're not, like, hiding out like they are in Ararat and the, the people stories. They're not, like, hiding. Um, you know, in that story, they can sort of hide out because they, they look basically like humans. They just have abilities that they need to suppress and and not expose to outsiders. And this, it really does, it is a really kind of weird alien that looks totally different. Uh, Let's see if I can get a description. I can't find a specific straight up description of him, but they don't have teeth. They have tentacles instead of arms. They don't seem to have blood. They're really quite different um, looking. Um, and this particular, uh, so there's already eight kids in this carpool. So you can imagine it's a pretty chaotic experience. Um, and it, that's what we're actually introduced to at the beginning of the story is, is these drives to this play, play area that the kids go on. And there's a lot of kids, uh, and it's kind of rambunctious and the kids are having fun. And then it's all about incorporating this child. Its name is Heenan into the carpool and the kids, like respond to it like, very, very violently at times. At one time it's choking him, at another time one of his hands, its tentacle hands is, is, is ripped off. It doesn't kill it directly, but you know, it's some pretty gruesome stuff that these kids inflict on this, this child. In some ways I think this story is, is trying to get at race in a way too and how, how racial prejudice and, and violence uh, against racial others is something that's trained as children. And not something really learned as adults, almost. Like, there's, there's so many kids in this car that it's kind of like a Lords of the Fly situation. And, and that troubles me a little bit. You know, I think historically, prejudice tends to come from the, the adults down. Um, so anyways, that's the heart of the theme of the story. Um, there's some other really trippy stuff in this story as well that I, I really dug. So after his hand is removed by the other child, you know, torn off, he goes to the hospital and they talk to the mother and the mother first of all she doesn't seem to have any concern for her child maybe that's just an alien thing or these emotions are not really registerable for 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 humans watching them i mean that's certainly an interesting concept in, in when we think about aliens right i mean it's, even it's the case with with animals right we we try to anthropomorphize animal emotions we say oh that that tiger mother is feeling for her tiger cub or something. But that, you know, is that really how they feel? It's hard to understand how other um, species, you know, experience emotion. And Darwin even wrote a whole book about emotion. I think it was his last book that he published, you know, or one of his later ones where he actually looks at the evolution of facial gestures and emotional expression and things like that. Um, But anyways, uh, here's what the mother says. The hand will grow back, but the thing within my son... Do not trouble yourself. And then they are like, oh, you know, they're blaming Gail. Gail's the child who did it. And she says, do not trouble yourself. My son receives from, from this wound that does not heal. On hysteria, he would, have for, be, he would be forever sick, you understand. On your world where everyone is born with this open wound, it will be his protection. So Mrs. Baden warned me, and I think she is wise. It's a bit weird. You're not quite sure what's going on. Like, why can't he heal? Is it, is, it, is it physical healing? And on some level, it's emotional. So we learn a little bit about these aliens and, and their emotional state. And she, the explanation comes a few pages later where she says, Oh no, he poisons himself. It is an ancient hormone from the early days of our race when we had what your Mrs. Baden so widely called aggression. It is dormant, in a sense, before the accounting of our history. An adult Hiserian perhaps could fight his emotions and cure himself. He then has no weapons, so your physicians have explained to me from our scientific books. How could I doubt that they are, are right? So, on some level, his inability to heal comes from the the fact that he he hasn't been able to fight off these emotions. These emotions kind of poison him internally. It's... It, it's kind of, of course, like where we, this makes us think, of course, of the Vulcans in Star Trek uh, are, that are presented as an emotional race that suppress that. But that was largely through training, right, and through culture. Um, this almost is it's like an evolutionary kind of adaptation. So to such a degree that these emotions become toxic to, to the alien. And since this child has been raised on a planet that is full of emotion, that it's going to be harder for the children of this of this culture to sustain to to adapt to that that new c- circumstance because their evolutionary makeup is to make emotions such so toxic to them. So that's a really really fascinating idea, and you know th- there could be a lot more um, development on that particular thing, right? So it ends up with a fairly um, satisfying and 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 happy ending, but the the climax revolves around. Uh, the human children having to explain to this alien child that that they were not hurt by him right that, that a lot of this toxicity in his in his blood or whatever you know comes from this feeling that he has maybe done some harm to them and they, they end with a with a with a joke they, they end up um, laughing together so that's that's the story um really really trippy and and, and 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 wild i i like this um both in how it it kind of interrogates the future of these kind of bourgeois lifestyles which of course is, is something you expect right that people tend to talk, comment when they write science fiction they tend to comment on the concerns and the worries they have at the time and and for some of these women writers it was the perpetuation of bourgeois life right women still driving carpools women like oran created he them women still like raising kids in suburban homes just by the end of the world right but i think where you really see the influence influence of maybe like the new wave stuff is this um this this alien species that's been adapted to not have aggression and then trying to adapt to the aggression and violence in the backseat of a, of a carpool right that is really really a cool idea so anyways, Roselle George Brown's Carpool, 1959. So the next story I read here is very, very short. It's Elizabeth Mann Borges. Uh, the story is called For Sale Reasonable. It was also published in 1959. And it was published in the magazine of, science, of fantasy and science fiction. Um, and this is straight up about the fears of automation. I, I think you could publish a story like this today and people would would feel totally comfortable with it uh, as a story expressing our concerns and our, our, our anxieties about automation. All right? In fact, we're given a footnote at the beginning because the whole document is a letter, an application letter um, of, a, of a woman to essentially an AI or, or a machine system applying for a job. And we get this footnote. So we' kind of got the, the, the 1984 appendix kind of question, right? Is the appendix, in 1984, talking about a world that's kind of gotten beyond, you know, that Oceania—that's Atwood's uh, interpretation, of course—or um, is it just kind of for the reader's convenience and not really suggesting a, an optimism, a silver lining in the story? Um, so here we have the same kind of thing. Um, I'll just read the footnote. The following document is from the year 1979 and is among the earliest of this type on record. We reproduce in its entirety because it shed some light on the curious memetic relationship, the puzzling transfer of qualities between man and machine, that began to become noticeable around the middle of the 20th century. ST was purchased by the Inland Joy Development Corporation on April 24, 1980. The concept of liberty having been undermined by the political, social, and economic practice of the period, it was natural that the contract between ST and IJDC in, initiated a long series of similar self-scales which in turn gave rise to an exorbitantly rich but reliable docile class of promoc brains or neo-helots. Um, so um, a lot to unpack there, right? Obviously, this is going to be about people becoming machines and not so much machines becoming more people-like, right? That's, that's again, that's kind of old-fashioned argument, right? Maybe Asimov would write those kinds of stories, but to what degree are, are robots capable of, of, of being human or, or experiencing you know, human concerns or making ethical choices? Of course, that's big on the robot stories. Uh, what you get in more recent stories is the concern that we are going to become more like uh, robots. right? of course, Philip Dick's approach is, you know, we really can't tell if we're a robot or not. There's really no objective way of determining that. So, um, But a lot of things, like these neo-helots, I mean, helots were, of course, the slaves in Spartan society, in Greek society. Um, so they're described as a exorbitantly rich but reliably docile class. Promach brains or neo helots, so they're rich and wealthy, but they're still described here as, as like a new generation of slaves. Um, but, anyways, the the whole thing is a letter to essentially an AI. It, it seems to me, yeah. And a lot of it is about describing and restating how superior machines are to humans in in computing capacity and in, in doing work right so it's the this the automated dystopia right where there's no jobs for humans anymore right i guess you got the the more optimistic people would say well if machines are doing all the work we don't need to do work anymore and if we find a way of distributing resources justly automation is not a big threat and then you have the people who basically can't get beyond seeing what do we do if we don't have a job and that's what you get out of this story so people are scrambling for jobs and This writer, this SD, whoever, or ST, who wrote this, this letter, spent a lot of time talking about the superiority of of machines, but also saying there's things that humans can contribute and I can contribute this or that. So it's kind of like a regular application letter uh, in which you have, uh, these are my skills. These are the things I'm good at. This is my, uh, my, you know, my, my abilities. But really, it's towards the end of the story, the last page, that you get the the twist on it, which is actually, this isn't for a job so much, but actually a sales, uh, an advertisement for a sale. So we, uh, this author writes, I offer myself at the humble price of dollars, $99,500 plus sales tax. The giant brain, you realize, costs millions. So she's saying she's cheaper than a robot. That will buy me a home in Garden City with three baths and a built-in kitchen. It will buy me a with tiles from Ravenna and a cruise to Hawaii and an English lawn with Greek statuettes. All that is much cheaper than the machine. And a set of new teeth and contact lenses and a double garage and 2,000 pounds of books with Florentine buildings, bindings. It will air cool the house and see the children through the most exclusive of schools. The contract should grant you an option on, on one or more of my children as you wish. A canoe with a sail and a dog with a pedigree. The price of a good machine is frightfully high. Upon signing this contract, you pay me—me uh, pay my upkeep a mere four or five hundred dollars a month. For that, you acquire all my working hours. I am ready at once to work on the new methods of stimu- stimulating the spending on leisure industries by retired Ulsters in suburban areas of the metropolis. Furthermore, you may guide my hobbies. I'll turn over to you any gains from telequizzes and similar games. Um, and then there's lots more details on the contract, but essentially. The contract is to become a slave, but a slave that's like living fairly comfortably, right? Because the sale price is enough to set her up in perpetuity with, again, that bourgeois middle class 1950s ideal life, right? And it's it's laid down in specifics, right? Kids go to college, the the double garage, a certain number of books to impress the people who come to visit, built-in kitchen, um, a pool... A, a vacation to Hawaii and all that right it, it's the ideal middle-class life you can only get it by selling yourself to to this um, nameless corporation um, well that's exactly what people did in the 50s right so th- that's the criticism this is a criticism of mass culture it's a criticism of, of consumer society um, and and how people sold themselves to corporate corporations and institutions in order to sustain the facade of of a a middle-class bougie life um but again i think you know if you just with a little bit of change we could see this story still being with us but you know maybe the focus would be much more on on automation perhaps but i think this issue is still there right how much people are willing to give up how much freedom they're willing to give up how much they're willing to carry on cell phones to answer phone calls from their boss 24 hours a day. They're willing to put up with all sorts of, of crap from their employers, uh, Not they refuse to unionize sometimes or vote against unions, all because they're afraid that they won't be able to pay their mortgage, right? Um, in fact, I think there's more to be said about the impact of the mortgage and home ownership on, on the depoliticization of the American working class, right? Um, when the American working class was much more radical, um, you know, in the '30s, '40s, and even into the '50s, where you still had high union membership, but a lot of that was was spillover from earlier rates. Since then, we've had declining union membership, but increasing homeownership, right? Now, just because there's a, a correlation doesn't mean there's causation, but uh, I think in this case there might be, right? Because once you you're sewing over your head in you know, getting the kids' college film going, paying the mortgage, paying, making the car payments, all that stuff, you know, you are willing to do anything to keep that job, right? If you get to lose it, it's like a house of cards. If you lose that job, it all falls apart, right, very quickly. And we have the situation now where a huge percentage of American families, you know, don't even have enough money for a plane ticket. Um, Yeah. Or you hear the more ridiculous stories about these millionaires who are complaining that they're living paycheck to paycheck because they've, they use their entire massive salary to, to sustain a, a certain lifestyle. Um, this just adds the machine, the robot element, and comes up with a very, very interesting but very, very short story. All right, next, The Birth of a Gardener, Doris Pickett Buck. This was published in 1961 in in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction again okay so this story kind of continues what we've seen in several stories which is the the domestic relationship uh being critiqued or criticized here you have a, a pretty uh i don't know maybe it's a bit over the top but you know certainly there was this idea in in Western history, for a long time, that women couldn't do science, right? That that goes back to the Scientific Revolution. We do know that women were engaged in science, um, sometimes uh, working alongside spouses, sometimes um, in other ways, and it's kind of a parallel to the the whole point of this store of this anthology, which is women were were science fiction writers, you know, as well in the Golden Age, and maybe their contributions haven't been as well appreciated as they should. Right. And of course, historians of science have done the same thing with with science and have seen how women were active creators of, of scientific research, you know, all the way back to the 17th century. Right. But the, the idea is like, yeah, the scientists were men and, and, you know, women really couldn't do that. Right. Here you have a scientist who's studying antimatter, matter and antimatter, and he condescends his wife for her interest in science. At one point, she's trying to read the science books, um, and she says something like, "You aren't going to be an intellectual because you try to read something elementary on physics." And then she he tells her, "Why don't you just garden?" Saying, "If you want to be happy for an hour, get drunk. Happy for an evening, roast a pig. Happy for three days, get married. If you would be happy for life, plant a garden." Right. And um, but nevertheless, she wants to speak her mind and and and. Ex- herself in various ways, but she's always being condescended by her her husband. Now, in response to this, she makes a very, very bold claim that she evoked him. Essentially, that she brought her husband into into being. Um, and she explains this a little bit, saying, "You can call it that, don't you see? I've always wanted you, even when I was little." though I didn't know within exactly how you'd look. I kept adding details, hair just as bright as brass and all the lovely and shiny, a straight way of standing, large hands but with an awfully nice shape. I just thought it'd be very hard and finally one day you were there, he replies. Nonsense, I happened to be passing by when you were going to the subway and dropped some nickels. I never realized until tonight that you dropped them on purpose. But I didn't, things just happened. After I, she took her, fla- this flowers and added them without interest some already in the base while she explained things do happen sometimes in the most marvelous ways but now they go they go all wrong I go, which is kind of interesting why didn't she evoke him not to be an asshole is uh, the question but anyways he is he is an asshole um, uh, that is constantly condescending her um, but she dies she dies of like a stroke or something and, and then the rest of the story is about him kind of coming to terms with this, but also him trying to ultimately evoke her using the same method. Like after she dies, he even finds that she wrote this book called On the Validity of Thought Patterns as Determined by Their Elegance, which seems to have some relation to this method of evoking. And then he he, he tries this. He, he basically go, tries to go through a process of evoking her back to, to life. Now the title, Birth of the Gardener, comes from his final uh, decision uh, when he kind of fails in, in, in bringing back the wife that he wants, right? Because he's still an asshole at the end of the story. He doesn't really evolve. He just seems to want his wife back. Um, yeah, but he re- does resolve just to become a gardener, right? Or to build, a make a garden um, to give him that happiness for the rest of his life. All right. Um, but, but that's a re- it's a really fascinating story about, that's focusing on women as creators of of science And the, the prejudice that, that still was pretty strong in the 60s that said women really can't be can't be scientists or can't be as active in science as, as men. And I don't know what the stats are on PhDs in science, but, you know, they're still not equal and they certainly weren't in the 60s. And then you have the domestic relationship and you have a educated husband who just doesn't see his wife as his intellectual equal, which is... Um, kind of fascinating, you know. When I when I got married, it was like I, I found someone who's vastly my superior in in intellect. So, anyways, next story. Oh, we got a population story. Um, Alice Glazer, "The Tunnel Ahead." This was originally published in the magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction. Again, uh, November 1961. Ah, uh, population. I don't know what to say about this. I, I've talked about it a lot in the Philip Dick um, podcast. Um, of course, in the 60s, so I think it was in 1961, that natural increase rate for the global population peaked at about 2.1, right? It had been growing, uh, you know, because birth rates remained high, while death rates declined, thanks to technology, thanks to curing smallpox, and a lot of different re- reasons, right? And so natural increase rates increased, all for good reasons in that, you know, people were living older, you know, people were living longer, people weren't dying as children anymore at the same rate, but it peaked in 1961, the same day the story was written, same year the story was written. And it's since been declining, and now the natural increase rate for the world is is 1.2 or something percent, and by the end of the century, it'll probably be close to zero percent or even a negative, and we're going to start to see population decline right so um now the malthusians the neo-malthusians now the meal malthusians at least they add ecology and fossil fuel use and global warming to the analysis but the core malthusian argument anyways has not proven to be true thanks to the green revolution thanks to many other uh, innovations gmo crops whatever we are producing food and i actually believe that through permaculture and through uh, sustainable methods we can still produce more than enough food to feed the world. We we overproduce food, right? We pay farmers not to produce food, not to produce milk. So it's 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 crazy to think that population is going to lead to mass famine the way um, Paul Ehrlich did in this population bomb, which also was published in the early '60s. Um, so um, what's wrong with this argument? Well, first, humans are creators. Uh, They don't just use resources. They create resources. They're not bacteria in a Petri dish. Um, What else? Well, humans are adaptable. They can change to their circumstances. As we urbanize, people have fewer kids. You know, as women become more educated, as women become, get more freedoms, they choose to have fewer kids. They choose to use birth control. So the population doomsdayers never came about, right? Now, nevertheless, the 60s, it was the zeitgeist of the 60s. to fear population growth, right? That this, if this 2.1 is not sustainable and eventually we'll all be starving and there'll be wars over this and all that. We get a lot of stories in this time period dealing with this. We got uh, Make Room, Make Room. We have Stand on Zanzibar. There's a, a couple sci- um, Star Trek episodes. There's The Conscience of a King. That's a special case because it's set on a colony, but that's uh, that's the one with uh, you know half the population is is killed off so the other half can survive um, and the other one is i think it's called the mark of gideon which is about a population that eradicates disease and virtually death and the result is a population of planets that's overwhelmed and then these aliens want kirk to introduce a virus to wipe out a big chunk of their population so lots of stuff lots of people in science fiction talking about population this is this Alice Glazer story is one of those stories talking about population. And yeah, I think you know my feelings on po- I don't I think this was an overblown um, panic maybe understandable at the time, but you know, none of it panned out really. So, I actually find the ecological dystopias a little bit um, more plausible, because I, I, I do think there, there may be something like a carrying capacity in terms of certain resources, and certainly on fossil fuel-based economy. I think if we convert to sustainable energy, um, solar energy, things like that, we won't have these problems quite so much. But, um, you know, you can have an ecological dystopia with a billion people, or you can have it with 12, 12 billion. You know, if there's only a billion people on the planet, you still, we can still drive off the cliff due to, to, to climate change. You know, it's it's about the fossil fuel industry. It's about the power they hold over our policymakers. It's about the power they have over our economy, and and this and it's about the systems we created that basically service them, whether it's the inter, interstate highway system or or the uh, international travel system, which is all tied to, which is all based on fossil fuel too. So anyways, Alice Glasser's story. Let's talk about this story. Um, it's very short. Uh, this family goes to the beach, uh, and they come back. And this city, I think it's New York City or something, is so overpopulated that they invented a device that would essentially kill a few thousand people a week or something. right? So it's, it's, but it's completely random. And the way it works is if you want to get back into the city, you have to go through this tunnel. And the tunnel will randomly, totally randomly, close. So it's a car tunnel, like a Lincoln, Lincoln Tunnel or something, right? So you imagine all the cars in there. And I think it's, it's given the stats given at some point in the story. 700 cars in the tunnel at one point, right? And just randomly, like a few times a week, I think it's seven times a week or something, it, it will close. Um, and when it closes, then everyone in there is gassed basically with, you know, I think it's actually, there's some Nazi imagery here um, where we're told what the gas is. I think it's, it's kind of a pesticide or something or, or cyanide, something like that. Uh, everyone's killed. And then and that that's just one way of reducing population. But it's totally random, right? It's totally random. And actually, it's kind of exciting. So the people driving through the tunnel, they make a game of it, right? They're and this family driving through the tunnel, they're like seeing the end coming. They're like, are we going to make it this time? It's kind of a rush, right? In fact, uh, we're told by the narrator that, or maybe it's one of the characters that, it's the only excitement left in this bleak, dismal world of, that's overpopulated, right? And that's a, a thing, a theme in a lot of these overpopulation stories from this time, is that you know somehow an overpopulated world will be necessarily miserable and and I don't know why that is necessarily like I don't like people. I I understand like not liking to bump into people and not liking crowded streets. And I I prefer an empty park to a busy street. But like that all pleasure in life gets sapped out in an overpopulated world. That's I don't know where that comes from. It's some element of this malthusian terror of the 60s was somehow that like all pleasure in life is taken away so the only pleasure they have is actually this this russian roulette with the tunnel um but not bad right like the stoicism in facing this is kind of creepy the family knows they're going to die the final scene is actually um the father like nudging his daughter's um, pigtail knowing she's going to die um the fact that everyone sort of voted for this, this was de- arrived at democratically, is really, really creepy. Um, there's so many better ways to deal with population than randomly killing a few thousand people every week. Um, but, I don't know. It's, um, it's kind of like the lottery in that way, but it's different. Now, I want to say one more thing about the story where I think it, it has an interesting idea. Because I, I don't really buy the population overpopulation stuff, but the roads will kill a random number of us. Some maybe deserve it; most won't. Every every year, I don't know. I'm not going to pull up the stats here, but it's it's thousands of people, tens of thousands of people die in car, highway accidents every year. In China, it's it's definitely tens of thousands of people die every single day or every every single year in automobile accidents just getting hit on the road you know you're just driving around you get in a car accident you know maybe it's a guy who's drunk maybe it's maybe it's just an accident right that's what we call them accidents no one wanted them to happen you know or you'll get hit by a car if you're riding a bike or whatever a certain number of us are as long as we're tied to roads a certain number of us are going to be snuffed out and it's random, it's kind of random, it's random chance, it's just a risk you take every time you get in the car. And we didn't vote for that, at least here this was voted for, we didn't vote for that. At what point did we vote to have a car-based economy? At what point did we vote to have uh, the, the inter- you know, a, a whole society dependent on automobiles, that if we want to go shopping, we have to play Russian roulette to, to get food? Uh, when did we all decide democratically to haul around two tons of plastic and metal that's going to kill people and destroy the climate at the same time? You know, it, this was at least a democratic decision, it seems. Anyways, uh, that where I think this story has some power is, is just in the randomness of, of like the moral hazard of, of roads, the moral hazard of the automobile. And I think we haven't really fully come to terms with that or appreciate that. You know, I, I teach students, young, you know, children these days, um, high school kids. And yeah, mostly they come in cars, right? Any day, you know, one of them could be killed in a car wreck. Right? And it wasn't because he's a bad kid or anything. There wouldn't be any moral reason for that. It's just, just totally, almost totally random. And that's really scary for me, really, and, and I think it's an interesting conversation about ethics and democracy. Um, so, anyways, that's that. Um, a couple of stories left here. Uh, next, Kit Reed, the new you, the new you. Uh, this was published again in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, um, and in September, nineteen sixty-two. Okay, so this story is, is really wild. It's really trippy. Um, so we're, we start with an advertisement for the new you, right? It's like a fashion magazine. And you can buy this thing. And what you buy is basically a new body. And it's some device that basically changes your body. And then it, it's supposed to kill the old body. So it's kind of like, um, kind of like a transporter, right? In Star Trek, right? It destroys one body and creates a new one. But there in the transporters in Star Trek, it, you know, everything's the same. Here, you know, it's like better, right? Thinner. And this woman, Martha, she wants the... She, actually, the story begins. She keeps talking to her a kind of another self, which I think she calls Marion or Mar, Marnie. And who's kind of her beautiful inner self, right? Um, I think I must have talked about my feelings about this inner self idea. I, I don't really think there is an inner self. I think... There's only our training, our habits, our masks we wear. I, I'm skeptical. Um, but if people really do believe that their inner self exists and 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 they need to express it, that's cool. I'm, I'm chill with that. But I, I, I kind of envy them knowing this inner self. I don't feel that. I, I feel... It's not that I feel dead inside. I'm not going that far. I'm, I'm saying I don't... Like when I'm teaching, I'm teaching. When I'm writing, I'm a writer. When I'm doing this podcast, I'm... I have a certain way of thinking and addressing myself right when i'm out drinking i'm doing something else it's and then there's a the whole question of like free will that you know i just read um ted chung's uh stories on, on in exhalation all of them i i was part of a podcast at the earlier like last before the summer um the sff audio podcast a really good one was part of that and I only read actually a couple of the stories but I went back and read all of them and a lot of them deal with free will and fate and all that you know if that exists like what's this this inner true self If it's just the the kind of whatever's been sort of programmed into us by fate by our habits right I'm kind of with William James on this like if we want to like the way you stop smoking is by making a habit of not smoking it's not like some will battle with some inner demon it's, it's just a, it's what you do right it's uh It's your behavior is what matters. So I'm kind of with the behavioral psychologists um, in this way. So anyways, I don't know about that part of it. But anyways, you know, at the surface, we just have a woman who wants to be hot. Right. So she gets to know you. Now, it kind of malfunctions. She's so eager to do this. She doesn't read the instructions. She botches it. And so what it does is it creates essentially a transporter double of her. But it's her old self, right? And... And now she's really hot and she's got this other she literally for a while she puts this other person like in the you know in the closet or something and but you know you have to feed her it's a it's a person, right? And then the question is like who gets the husband, right? And of course, um, Marnie, and that's what the name for the new one is Marnie, she wants the husband, right? But eventually she decides she wants uh, you know the Better-looking husband, so she has him do the new you too to become also beautiful. But instead, he walks off with the old Martha, who you know, and she's left all alone at the end. Actually, I think she's left with um, the the old hu- like they also like she botches that too, and there's like a transporter double of the husband, and and they end up the the new beautiful husband ends up with the old not so beautiful wife. Um, So it's kind of fun. It's really funny. It's it's an enjoyable story um, about like the beauty myth about the the pressure to be beautiful. Right. The fact that we start with a fashion magazine that's advertising a way to be beautiful. Like the technology, of course, doesn't exist for this. But certainly people spend a lot of money on plastic surgery, spend a lot of money on, on cosmetics, a lot of money trying to 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 look a certain way, to be attractive to others or to more to Kit Reed's point to To feel how how they want to feel inside, right? And I'm not, I don't know if I'm using the language correctly, but you know, they they invest all of these resources into feel how they really want to feel inside, and and this is just the extreme example of it, right? But the end result, I think, in a way, is is maybe too optimistic, and it's that you know the husband decides, you know, I really love this Martha, that's who I want to be with, right? Um, but but that's the story. There's some morality here of killing, uh, the killing the transporter double. You know, can you kill it? And and Martha at one point with the Marnie says, "Of course we can kill the transporter double because the new U double because it's it's not a person. It's just like leftover clothes." At one point, but actually, it is a person with consciousness. Right? It's it, it's kind of fun, funny, and um, a good story. And the fact that the the venal woman ends up with um, kind of the the schlocky husband. It's, it's kind of funny. It sort of <laughs> works. Okay, next. John J. Wells, Marion Zimmer Bradley, Another Rib. Uh, this story was published in Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction, June 1963. Why is that, why are they all coming from here? That's a question for um. Yes, why did you did you pick these stories? Cause they came from the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, or was it just a coincidence? A lot of stories seem to be coming from that magazine. Maybe they they just made a point of, of publishing women more than others. Uh, it's a question I have for her. I, I don't think this came up in the introduction. All right, everybody. Um, okay another rip so this is uh, a great story in fact I I I summarized this uh, basic idea to my daughter to see what she would think of it and she didn't really reply I sent her a Facebook message but uh, I wanted to know what she think of it Um, this is a gender-bending story in a way not not, gonna go as far as it could I mean I think it kind of I don't want to say chickens out but it could have been a lot more fun if the authors, Wells and Bradley, had done something different with it. But we get what we get, right? So basically, uh, you got some explorers. How many people is it? Is it 12? Let's let's say 12, or 15, 14 uh, men. All men on a ship, on some kind of going to Mars, right? Now while they're no, we're going to another planet, it can't be Mars. They're going to another planet. And while they're there, they they're on this, they, they meet an alien fanu is his name and he's like the last of his race kind of alien and he kind of befriends them and he he shows them back to earth or back to the solar system and they see that the sun has exploded and destroyed all humans right so they're the last people too so they have that with in common with fanu um and that's the end of the human race right but fanu says maybe not uh i can he studies their genome he studies their genetics and he realizes that um he's able to kind of extract I guess from the X chromosomes or something, that's not really explained in that much detail, Uh, somehow basically make some of the men essentially women so they can reproduce and they can couple off, right? So that's what I think the story should have gone, where like half of them would have to commit to being women and taking these men as, as husbands, right? In order to save the human race. That would have been really interesting. It would have played with queer issues a bit more than the story does. It, it, certainly the story does deal with that because we have men who basically become bearers of children, right? But I don't get the sense they physically change into women. And at the end, Fanu says, well, we can always just change you back once we ha- start having girls. Once some girls are born, you, you know you don't have to do this anymore. You don't have to bear children. So instead, it becomes like that Arnold Schwarzenegger movie uh, where he he gives birth to the baby. I forget the junior. Is that the name of that movie? That's stupid comedy. It's more like that than actually uh, an issue of transsexualism, um, transsexuality, which, I you know, and it would have been it wasn't that these people feel they they're deep down they're women. It's it's they to save the race, some of them are going to have to become women and and have sex with men you know that and, and marry them and, and maybe create families and then you could have explored the, you know the relationship between these characters you know through this adventure through this journey do they do they start to build emotions do they have to start to address their their sexuality in a way or their homophobia so many cool things could have been done with the story that i didn't think were done because because at the end we're told oh you can just go back to being men after this and once we and then that's another way that once all these girls are born, then they're going to have to. I guess when they're twenty, these guys will be in their forties and fifties. Which I guess isn't too creepy, but you know they are going to be like all in the family, right? It'll be, I guess we'll be be back like Paleolithic bands, where you had small groups of fifty to hundred people. You know, I guess there was a lot of you know people knew each other. You know, throughout their lives. You know, uh, Christopher Ryan's book *Sex at Dawn* talks a little bit about this that. Although, in one way, because they weren't monogamous, um, Paleolithic people uh, were certainly less monogamous than us, but in terms of like they didn't hook up because everyone in your society were people you knew and people you knew from a very young age. So it wasn't like a, a hookup culture like Tinder or something. So, yeah, you know, maybe it ended with something like that. So it's not too bad. But at the time, I was thinking like like these these girls that are born, that first generation of girls, by the time they're You know, sexually mature these guys are going to be up there but you know that's not really the focus of the story so maybe it went as far as it could at the time I would have preferred a story in which you know some of these men would have had to commit to being totally women and sleeping with men and confronting certain emotions I I don't quite know what it would be but that's what I that's where I thought the story was going actually but anyways, a lot of fun and, and a good representation of, of, of a story from the 1960s that's dealing with gender issues. Um, then the last one, um, Sonia Dorman, When I Was Mrs. Dow. Uh, this was published in Galaxy in 1966. And it has some similarities here. So here we have a, uh, an alien, like humans interacting with a human's colonists on a planet, interacting with the indigenous population who are protean meaning they, they, can, uh, they can basically become any form they they want. Um, they have their own kind of hierarchy in society, but it's genderless. So here we have it. Before we had a, a story in Another Rib dealing with gender roles and, and men forcing to take on the female gender role, at least as far as bearing children. Here you have a, a culture without gender confronting a culture with gender. And so the main character, the narrator, becomes the like the secretary for the for the one of the scientists among the, the settlers arnold proctor and eventually sort of developed a relationship with him so the interesting thing in this story for me is how this genderless species interacts with a species with gender and is able to develop um, attraction uh, sexual relationships uh, through that and then now this doctor dies eventually and she has to she whatever what, the, the creature it <laughs> um sorry i gotta be careful with my pronouns here has to come to terms with that loss and and return to her community changed by that experience all right um yeah that, that's all i'm going to talk about there's a lot of stories in this group so i'm gonna do um just say that's it for now um but yeah these are great uh stories i, I the tunnel, I, I sort of liked if it wasn't about population, if it was just um, about traffic in a way and traffic deaths. Um, we see the introduction of a of, of lot more aggressively issues of gender, of, of a lot more openly feminist works when we get to the new wave science fiction stuff from the 60s. So that's all great. That's that. That I think seeing the evolution of some of these themes is is one thing that'll make this anthology worthwhile, right? I'm still thinking about picking up the the Women of Wonder anthology and taking another look at that now because I'm sure some of these authors, a lot of these authors and stories are in that anthology. But I just have a vague memory of of that. I, I know the Sal Moore story, No Woman Born, is in there, the Cyborg story, but I don't remember many of the others. So I'm going to try to find that and, and kind of compare them and maybe I'll do an add-on conversation where I compare these two anthologies, right? Because on the one hand, although I think this anthology is really great and it's a great contribution for the Library of America, I, I'm i wondering how original it is in, in every way. And people have done these kinds of anthologies before. Um, But, you know, this kind of uplifts it, right? This is not a a pulp publisher. This is the the, the American canon, the publisher, the Library of America that's trying to establish the American canon. Um, So, anyways, we got one more episode. Uh, The last hundred pages, it's four stories. Um, They're all published uh, in the 1960s, 1967 to 69. They are specifically Kate Wilhelm, Baby, You Were Great, which is a story about, uh, really, rape. so trigger warning for that episode. Uh, Joanna Rush, The Barbarian, which is kind of a callback to C.L. Moore's um, The Black God's Kiss and the Jarrell of Jory stories, um, but with more of a science fiction twist. James Tiptree, The Last Flight of Dr. Ain, which is kind of about population and nature as well. And Ursula K. Le Guin's Nine Lives, which is about um, cloning and individuality. I may have a, a guest joining me for that episode. I think she's only maybe been able to read two of them. We'll, we'll see if she follows through. If not, I'll just do it on my own. But we may have a guest for that, that episode. We'll see. Um, so, anyways, let me know what you thought of these stories. If you've read them before, if you have any of your own opinions, is there anything I missed or misinterpreted or got totally wrong? Please let me know. Send me um, probably wrong about a lot of this. Um, please send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com or leave your comments below. Uh, totally trashing me. For my um, my ignorance. Uh, yeah, that's it for now. I'll see you next time with the fi- finale of this series on The Future Is Female, edited by Lisa Yazek. a great anthology. And when she found her enemy, bound there, then to free it, she went back again. When